Hello. This episode is dedicated to Bookworm Jeff, LB1289, John65657, Nora Grace, and Lola Loa Lola. If you would like the next episode to be dedicated to you, please leave a iTunes or Ditcher review. Enjoy! Potter Study, an empath's guide to witchcraft and wizardry. I'm your host, Zara, and today I have Taylor with me. Hi, Taylor. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm going to start off by asking you some questions. First one is, what is your Hogwarts house? So I, of course, knew that this question was coming, mm-hmm. and in preparation, I decided to take the Potter So I'm one of those crazy people that either doesn't belong in Hogwarts at all, or has multiple personality disorder <laughs> syndrome. <laughs> because I've literally been in every house. Oh, really? Yeah. So the first time I took it, I think I got Ravenclaw. Mm-hmm. And then I took it again and got Gryffindor. And then I waited a couple years and returned to it. And then I got Slytherin. And then wow. I took it again because I was not happy with that. And then I got Gryffindor. And then most recently, I was like really happy resting on my laurels. and like, okay, well, I've never been Hufflepuff. Right? Mm-hmm. And then I took it a week ago and I got Hufflepuff. Which one do you feel like, though? Which one do you relate to the most? I don't know. I feel like indecisiveness might be a poor Gryffindor type of trait. Yeah. Like, they kind of waffle until it finally comes down to it, and then they dive in. That's true, yeah. So maybe that's where I land. I feel like you you fit into Gryffindor, yeah. Yeah. I could see you with the red and the gold. Thank yeah. you, yeah. You're yeah. welcome. I think the colors are going to be yeah. <laughs> if nothing else. Do you know what your Patronus is? Yeah, so I also took that recently, and it was a white swan. Oh, wow. Which is both lovely and awful because <laughs> white swans are huge dicks. <laughs> they are, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, so I have two phobias. Okay. And one of them is swans. It makes sense. They literally bite people. You mm-hmm. like, try and feed them in Hyde Park and they just get like huge gash marks on their hands. It, so. it freaks me out when I see little children, especially oh, like yeah. really near ponds feeding swans. It freaks me out. Like I have to actually look away and walk away because my like, instinct is just to grab the kid and, like, pull them away from the swan because I'm so scared for them. Parents wouldn't appreciate that, I don't think, so I tend to just kind of walk away. Yeah. I appreciate you wanting to intervene and protect their children, right? Yeah. I won't say what my other phobia is, though, because it's really weird. But, But yeah, I mean, I do... Now that I've thought about it a bit more, I kind of do like the white swan Mm. because I wanted something that was water-based. And white swans are kind of like in between being water-based and land-based, but then they can also fly a bit. So maybe it's, again, it's with the indecision. Bit. They're really serene. Yeah. They look serene, but then they can fight back if they need to. So like that's that's a good way of looking yeah, at it. Yeah, to be positive. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. What class do you think you'd be really good at if you went to Hogwarts? Probably something really nerdy and specific, so maybe like charms. Yeah? Yeah, I feel... That or Transfiguration, because I love the novel so much. I feel like everyone wants to be good at Transfiguration, but I feel like it would be, like, the hardest class. True. I mean, I have historically kind of chosen to do things that are really difficult, mm. and I kind of challenge myself to do that thing. So maybe in that way, Transfiguration would actually work. Or I would want to challenge myself to yeah. do Transfiguration, mm-hmm. even if I wasn't actually, like, inherently good at it. <laughs> but. Right. Who's your favorite character? Well, since we're talking about teachers mm-hmm. today, uh, I think I'll probably go with McGonagall. Yeah. She's a lot of people's favorite. Yeah. I mean, she's so amazing, really. And I think in terms of people that make good parental figures and are good visions of authority, she's probably like the epitome of what that is. 
because yeah. a lot of the adult characters try and treat the children more as friends or more as adults. And I think McGonagall is really good at setting boundaries and being consistent. And really, that's kind of what you need in a parental figure or a figure of authority more so than you need them to be your friend. Yeah. She has that like kind of strictness about her, but you can tell that she actually cares. And it comes from such a place of love. And that's really evident, especially in the last book when Harry comes back to Hogwarts and she's, I was just reading the bit where, um, where Harry is being dragged in, like, and they think he's dead. And the book describes that McGonagall, like, howls in a way that he'd never expected a noise to come from her. And I'm just kind of like, oh no. Every part yeah, breaks. I know, but I, that's, that's why I love rereading the books as well, is that, that sentences like that jumped out at you at different times. Yeah. Like, the first few times I read the book, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me that that was, like, so significant about her. But because now with doing this podcast, I am thinking of characters very much as, like, real people. So, like, every little thing they do, I'm just kind of like, that says so much <laughs> about who they are. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think that happens a lot when you are reading a huge world like this, that you can pick different things out of the world when you're coming out of it at different places. Yeah. So, like, I've just been, I started law, and I've written one of my first law papers about the importance of the rule of law and very, like, boring law-based topics, so I don't know, mm-hmm. public law topics. Mm-hmm. And I had read a paper that was about public law, specifically in the context of children's novels, and how sometimes people feel, well, I mean, we can talk about this later, how they engage with figures of authority. Yeah. And so after I had read that and written that paper, I returned to the book series and was reading through it. I picked up so many times how McGonagall was really even in her disciplinary actions. So, like, you know, if someone from Slytherin misbehaved in her class, she would discipline them. But equally, if someone from Gryffindor or her house was misbehaving in class, yeah. she would discipline them in the same way. It was really even application. She had favorites, but didn't mean that she abused her power to kind of pick out, like, not punish Hermione if Hermione fucked up. But thing would like a character like Snape, Snape definitely did that. Snape yeah. definitely didn't punish Slytherins. I don't know how he treated Hufflepuffs and Ravenclaws. We never really see that. Yeah. But he definitely disliked Gryffindors. And I read a thing the other day that J.K. Rowling said that Slytherins and Gryffindors always took potions together because he was worried that Snape wouldn't teach Gryffindors well if Slytherins weren't in the room as well. Oh, interesting. Which begs the question, why did you hire him? Yeah, but why is he a teacher at all? I know. He can't teach everyone appropriately, mm-hmm. but- well, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I was just like, yeah, that's favoritism, is it? That's just taking it to a whole extra level. But yeah, yeah. maybe that points to Dumbledore's own favoritism, mm. I guess, and his infinite wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Who's your? Who do you think's the most underrated character? Uh, I think there's quite a few, but listening to some of the episodes of our podcast, maybe in the context of this podcast, I think Hermione is a bit underrated. Okay. I've heard some people kind of take some jabs at her. Mm. Um, so I guess in defense of Hermione, I would say she's probably my favorite most underrated character. Okay. The episode after we're recording this that's going to come out is, I think, Hermione. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'm just preempting yeah. it. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so I guess I won't step on there mm-hmm. too much there. So I'm sure you're going into stuff about Spew and whether it's yeah. savior or not and how you can kind of have mm-hmm. a discussion there. But no, I just think that she's a really amazing character in the sense that she shows the most growth, I think. And you can't expect somebody to be the perfect vision of feminism or the perfect vision of equality when they're 11 or 12. Yeah. Or to be this perfect person as a child. But she seems to 
to me, as like the most dynamic and the most willing to grow and change over the series. Mm-hmm. So. And she's not perfect. And that's, I think, why I think people are a bit harsh about her is because she's not painted as perfect person. She is flawed in the same way that all the characters are flawed, but maybe we kind of pick at her flaws more because she's a woman. Yeah. I don't know. Like, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. I think that part of having novels and media generally that portrays women effectively is allowing women to be flawed and allowing women to grow and not holding everyone to a standard now that they would have had to be held to when they were younger or even like 20 years ago and allowing people to not be fixed in time. Exactly. Progression. Yeah. Okay, cool. So speaking of women characters that are very flawed, <laughs> we're talking about Dolores Umbridge today. Yeah. Why did you pick Umbridge? Well, Again, I kind of like a challenge, and mm. I think she's one of the most, if not the most, hated character in the Harry Potter series. And speaking to people, I think that she comes off as more hated than Voldemort, even. Yeah, and I have a theory about that. I feel like Voldemort is the super villain, mm-hmm. where he doesn't seem human, almost, like because of everything that's going on with him. Mm-hmm. But she's evil in a very human way, in a very, everyone knows an umbrage. Everyone yeah. has met an umbrage and you can just be, like everyone has met that person who just sticks by bureaucracy and just uses that as a method to kind of yeah, to to basically hate on the people that they don't like. So I feel like that's why a lot of people have this like huge hatred for Umbridge more so than Voldemort. And also Voldemort has this tragic backstory right. that we don't really know much about her except from Pottermore. And we'll touch a bit on that today, but most of the discussions we usually do are about the books. And from the books, she's not a very sympathetic character. No, yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree. That was what I was going to say as well, is that it is this weird parallel between her and Voldemort where Voldemort is like a faceless evil, but we also know his backstory. Mm-hmm. Whereas Umbridge is this very tangible evil, but we don't know her backstory. So there's no justification at all, or, or not justification maybe. There's no explanation for why she is the way she is. So I think that can be a bit tricky. There's no basis for you to relate to her on a personal level, but every basis for you to relate to the things that she does that you don't like. Yeah. And I was thinking about this, where if she were painted a bit differently. I think I would like her because she loves pink. I love pink. I love ribbons. I love stuff like that. <laughs> She's a cat person. I am very much a cat person as well. And you are as well. We talked about this before the episode. Like yeah. there are things where I'm just like I I can see she was risen in the ranks of the ministry, which I imagine is a very patriarchal like system in the same way that a lot of government organizations are. And she's risen to like a really high position. That's something that's admirable. Mm-hmm. It's just that she goes about it in such an evil way that you're just a bit like, why are you ruining pink for me? <laughs> why are you ruining cats for me? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was trying to decide if in some ways it's kind of a J.K. Rowling maybe unintentionally demonizing the hyper-feminine. Mm. She does represent this hyper-femininity she loves. Yeah, like you said, pinks and ribbons and cats and all these like girly things and even her voice is really high. Yeah. She does a lot of trills and giggles, all of these things that are especially associated with, yeah, this hyper-femininity. But because she's so evil, it's like a twisted version of it. Yeah. So I do wonder, I think you could interpret it as a negative perception on having that approach. But equally, I think with that point her just being her personality, that being yeah. a personality trait that kind of skews that, I'm kind of of two minds. I can't think of any other character in the books that is hyper-feminine that is painted well 
Like, Petunia is quite feminine, but yeah. she she's not a sympathetic character either. Lily, maybe? But Lily was also a fighter, and she stood up for herself. I don't know. We don't really know much about her other than she was beautiful. So I think that there are some Hogwarts students mm. that maybe fall into that category that do also get demonized. Lavender. Like a, yeah, Harvey, Lavender. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, people who like divination. Mm. So that tends to be like a more yeah. effeminate, womanly kind of thing that they're approaching and engaging with. And they also mm. tend to be doing it because they're, you know, the most interested in boys, the more gossipy and that kind of stuff. And then obviously Harry and his friends don't want to engage with that as much. So yeah. maybe there are a few other examples, I guess. But they're not painted well, are they? No. I mean, yeah. It is kind of a shame. I think it's tricky, right? Because any type of narrative like this that's so huge with so many books, it can do something really well and it can do something really poorly. And even in the case of like making the argument for strong female characters, it just because it does it well in one respect doesn't necessarily mean that it does it well. In, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what does a strong female character even mean? Like, what is that trope? Yeah, you know? true. Maybe it's allowing women to be flawed and mm-hmm. messed up. Maybe it's the yeah. Killing Eve approach, right? Yeah, or, exactly, yeah. Or allowing ourselves to have women that are awful. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely where Umbridge falls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if Umbridge was a real person, how would you describe her to someone who hasn't met her yet? Maybe, like, a very pink, very effeminate Kim Jong-un. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Even physically. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's the perfect descriptor of her. Yeah. That's so funny. Well, I was like doing some research about if we can find out a bit more about who she was before coming into Hogwarts. And there is a Pottermore article okay. about her, about her like family life. Oh, I might have seen that as well. Yeah, so she's the first child of a wizard and a muggle mom. Mm-hmm. Her younger brother is a squid. And her dad basically taught her to hate her mom and her brother. And then when she was 15, her mom and her brother disappeared into the muggle world and were never seen again. I know. It's really dark, isn't it? She went into Hogwarts. She was never made head girl. She was never made a prefect. And she kind of resented that and didn't enjoy her Hogwarts experience. And she was a Slytherin. And the head of her house was Slughorn. But Slughorn never liked her and thought she was really annoying. <laughs> I mean, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of like, and I feel like that kind of painted, when you think of that background, it makes a lot of sense the way she kind of approaches her Hogwarts career mm-hmm. of like going in and just going, I want to change everything about the school. I don't like how anything is being done. And if Slughorn was her head of house, then Dumbledore would have been her head master, wouldn't he have? Like, for at least half of... Yeah, is she old enough for that? I don't remember. I don't remember when he was made headmaster. He and Dumbledore are probably similar age. Yeah. Slughorn was ahead of Slughorn. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, Dumbledore would have been around, if anything, as a teacher, not the headmaster. Yeah. So that kind of, like, also paints her relationship with him. But what do you think of her relationship with... Let's start with Hogwarts as a whole. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because obviously she's a terrible character who genuinely, it's one of the few examples and like most drawn out examples that we have of torture and of real violence against children, right? Yeah. Harry has to write on his hand, um, and the slots are lies, Will, and that's a huge pivotal moment, I think, for him in the books, and it's part of us doing that. But it's also a huge pivotal moment for the group of them in terms of rejecting things that don't make sense and rejecting regimes that don't make sense. Yeah. 
So, I mean, at the risk of going down a, a rabbit hole again about rule of law and public law and why that matters, but it really connects in terms of people that enforce rules for the sake of rules can still can be like fumbling bureaucrats, right? And if they have real passion for the rules, you can understand that. But Umbridge doesn't really seem, it's not about the rules for her. I think it's more about the power and the control for her because she's willing to make up rules willy-nilly. She's willing to enforce those rules unevenly. And I think especially in the Hogwarts context, like a lot of the teachers and even Dumbledore himself are, as I've already said about the Bonneville, they're very all over the place. They're not very consistent. Yeah. But Umbridge really goes to the next level with that, and she's hyper inconsistent and really unevenly applies the rules, and yeah. different students have very different experiences. Mm-hmm. Do we know if she was kind to Hufflepuffs or Ravenclaws, or was she just, or, or did she favor Slytherins the same way Snape flavored? <laughs> the same way that Snape favored Slytherins? Well, we know that she flavored Hufflepuffs. <laughs> 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 Um, being an empath, you know, you yeah. <laughs> we know that she favored Slytherins because they're members of her inquisitorial squad. Yeah. Whereas we don't really see any Ravenclaws or Hufflepuffs that are on the squad. All that we see about her engaging with them is, um, I guess when she interrogates Cho Chang and Cho Chang's mm. friend. So that's kind of the only interaction that we see with them, which is obviously equally as negative. Yeah, and she was quite abusive too. That old girl, wasn't she? She was, yeah. What do you mean by shaking your head, dear? said Umbridge in a testy voice. I would have thought her meaning was quite clear, said Professor McGonagall, um, harshly. Then Professor Umbridge seized Marietta, pulled her round to her face, and began shaking her very hard. A split second later, Dumbledore was on his feet, his wand raised. I cannot allow you to manhandle my students, Dolores, said Dumbledore. Just very rich coming from him. Can I say that? Because he's put Harry in so many points of danger, but yeah, it looked good in front of everyone else. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, again with the consistency, mm. right? Like, sometimes he's very high-flying and noble, and then sometimes a bit indifferent, maybe. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. So, definitely she favors Slytherin. We know that. And generally speaking, you would think that she would favor students who give her information, or who are on her side, which is effectively what Miriam is doing in that passage. Yeah. Still, she just wants more out of her and is not very compassionate. Yeah. Which I guess goes to show that it's not about the rules, it's not about the individuals under her, it's about the control Mm -hmm. and power and knowledge. It's funny you mention that because part of the Pottermore thing as well is the thing with wands. Mm -hmm. And she has an abnormally short wand. And according to Ollivander, abnormally short wands usually selected those whose moral character was stunted rather than because they were physically short. Oh, interesting. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, say what you will about Pottermore and the death of the author, I do think that that's really interesting information. That's really valuable. Mm -hmm. Because that really does fit into my existing interpretation of Umbridge. I think that makes perfect sense. What do you think of her relationship with McGonagall? Yeah, I think they're really interesting foils for one another because in some regards, they're both kind of these strict female characters who are teachers at Hogwarts and yet they're so inherently different. And I think that goes back to that consistency and that compassion and that Umbridge totally lacks that in every respect, whereas McGonagall just exudes that. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes her also a really effective teacher because she's actually capable of engaging, whereas Umbridge never 
really seems to engage with anybody in a meaningful way. We only ever see her coming to heads with the character. There's never a moment, other than, I don't know, maybe with Filch, that she seems to, like, bond mm. on a human level with anybody. Yeah. I can't imagine her having friends. No. Or, like, ever having... I guess it makes sense, then, what you said about the Pottermore background of her family running away, is that yeah. I just don't really see her having any family background, any friends, no. anybody at all, really. Like, I generally can't imagine her having even a sympathetic ear that would just listen to her. I mean, who would want to, to be honest, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> I don't know, like, her name, like, Dolores, literally means pain. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, she has the same middle name as Hermione, though. They both have the middle name Jean. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Maybe, I mean, I guess Hermione also displays some character traits in the sense of, you know, being a strong, independent woman who's working her way up and sometimes can be well, can sometimes have blinders up yeah. in terms of her own advancement and is very strict in terms yeah. of enforcing the rules. But then we do see Hermione shifting yeah. on that throughout the series, I think. And Hermione can be a ruthless as well. Like, one of the moments that she was actually quite cruel mm-hmm. was what she did to Umbridge with the centaurs. Yeah. Because what's implied is that they were, like, sexually assaulted Umbridge. That's what the implication of it is. Because in folklore, like, centaurs raped women who were, like, walking by themselves. So, and she was just carried off by this herd of centaurs. And then the next time we see her, she's in the hospital wing, and she's, like, completely blank. Yeah. So we don't actually know what happened to her. But we know some kind of assault happened to her, whether sexual or not. That is, Hermione knew what she was doing there. And she kind of basically said that she deserves to be assaulted. Well, I don't know. I mean, when I first read that through as a child, I initially got the impression that she was being carried off to be killed and that she wouldn't return. Yeah. So I was quite surprised then when Dumbledore goes into the woods and touches her. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't get that the first read through, nor did I assume sexual assault, I guess, when I was reading it as a child. So it says here, Professor Umbridge was lying in a bed opposite them, gazing at the ceiling. Dumbledore had stood alone in the forest to rescue her from the centaurs. Madame Pomfrey says she's just in shock, whispered Hermione. Sulking more life, said Ginny. Yeah, she only shows life if you do this, said Ron. And with his tongue, he made a soft clip-clopping noise. Umbridge sat full upright, looking around wildly. Anything wrong, Professor? Called uh, Madame Pomfrey. No, no, said Umbridge, shrinking back into her pillows. No, I must have been dreaming. That's cruel. Like, I know that she's not a sympathetic character, but that is cruel. No, definitely. I mean, we don't know for sure, I guess, again, in defense of Hermione, yeah. whether Hermione was like, really aware of the threats that Centaur posed, the centaurs posed and what that would actually look like. She definitely didn't intend to do her harm. Yeah. I think that much is clear. Mm-hmm. And intended to get her out of the picture. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of tricky because, again, when you first read that, you, it feels like a victorious moment. It's mm. painted as a really entertaining moment, even, that, like, that Ron's joking around by making the Yes. So that is a bit troubling, but I don't know. I think that fits in with how much people hate her. That if there was ever a character that you'd be willing to see have traumatic things happen to them, it's probably her. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is kind of an outlet for that kind of aggression. Yeah. It's the sort of thing. It's like, is it all right to punch a Nazi? You know? It's the same (laughs) kind of like, um, yeah, thing in our popular culture now. Is, Is it okay to physically assault? someone who you think of as really hateful people that you love like it's yeah it's something that I struggle with as well because in a lot of ways like I'm 
I'm an immigrant, I'm a brown woman, I'm living in a country that's not very kind to immigrant brown people. And yes, I want to feel, I want people who are inflicting that kind of pain to people who look like me to feel a bit of remorse for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But I want that to come in the price of them also suffering. I don't know. That doesn't sit well with me. I don't know. It might kind of sit in terms of how irredeemable they are. So Umbridge isn't, you know, your ordinary evil. It's not that she's only done a couple of things or yeah. that she had only existed in that space and said a couple of things or had some ignorant views or something like that, right? It's every box yeah. of evil she effectively ticks in her time at Hogwarts, right? Yeah. So I think that's probably wise that you can see that there's no working back from that, that there's nothing to be gained mm-hmm. by being kind. But equally, it is kind of tricky then to be justifying harm against her. She's a bit sociopathic as well, isn't she? Especially with the I must not tell lies on Harry's hand. Yeah, that's just sadistic, right? She's actively enjoying watching him be harmed. There is this one passage where Harry flinches and she says, he wrenched his arm out of her grip and left his feet staring at her. She looked back at him, a smile stretching her wide slack mouth. Yes, it hurts, doesn't it? She said softly. Like, that's so sadistic. <laughs> it really is. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, there are also several times after he goes and spends evenings with Umbridge where his scar starts to hurt. Yeah. So it's almost like just this radar for evil, I guess, <laughs> kind of pinging. Uh, but yeah, so maybe that's also just creating another link for Harry between her and evil that is Voldemort, yeah. but it's a more tangible one that he engages with on a daily basis. And she has the locket as well at the in the seventh book. And we know that the locket really affected Ron, Hermione, and Harry, but she wore it around her neck for, we assume, months before, but she didn't seem that affected by it. I feel like it kind of fueled her evil. <laughs> In a way that it didn't with the other three. The other three thought dark thoughts, but she was already thinking those things all the time. That wouldn't affect her in the way that affected them. Yeah, she's just already in a baseline that, again, there's no going back from, yeah. I guess, or there's nowhere further to go. Yeah, I, I do think that she's interesting because at, at first when I started to sit down and think about her, I was like, okay, well, maybe it's a love for rules. And maybe it can be explained by really liking rigid systems and wanting to fit within that system and fit within those rules. Mm-hmm. But actually, on reflection, I really don't think that that's the case. And I think the locket and the um, trials that she's doing in the Ministry of Magic really goes to show that it's not about the rigidity of the rules for her. Yeah. It's just about the control because she's happiest when she's enforcing all of these, well, decrees at Hogwarts, but then also enforcing the non-magical and she herself is in. And it paints it in an even more sadistic way when we know that her brother was a squid mm-hmm. as well. So there's this extra layer of like evilness <laughs> that you're viewing it from. It's like that could have been your brother that you were sentencing to die, basically, because what happens to these people after you take their wands away from them? Because you're accusing them of stealing that wand from someone. So that means they go to Azkaban, and that means they die. That's horrific. Yeah, no, it's definitely devastating. And even to her use of Mad-Eye Moody's eye, yeah. that's another example of her just being so awful in a way that you can't really comprehend and mm-hmm. so unflinching about other people. So you do have to wonder if in the same way that Baltimore couldn't feel love, that if there's something at play there as to why she also doesn't seem able to genuinely connect with anybody. Feel remorse. Yeah. yeah. Or if it's just 
maybe that's the point too is that Voldemort is a faceless evil who genuinely can love and maybe Umbridge is a character who's chosen not to yeah yeah I can't again I can't imagine her in love and it's really tough to speculate because again we see everything through Harry's eyes and he's in no way willing and has no incentive to understand her background so there's no point where we do get any sense of that mm-hmm. of why she would be this way and why she would be unwilling to love yeah. or engage with anybody do you watch Handmaid's Tale or have you read the book yeah yeah <laughs> yeah she kind of reminds me of Aunt Lydia in that you way I did actually have that down I was gonna say that too <laughs> I love that so much yeah it's a really apt comparison um I think also too at the risk of giving a spoiler, I guess, for Henry's Tale, you do start to understand a bit about Aunt Lydia that her uh, responses to people and her lack of empathy also stems from a rejection. Yeah. Or at least that's how it's painted. So I think that that could make sense that she rejected or was rejected by her mother and brother and then was rejected at Hogwarts and then mm-hmm. that leads her to also reject any yeah. attempts by other people. Especially when I imagine she's so desperate for power or to feel or to feel powerful that if her head of hot house thought she was an annoying woman that didn't want anything to do with her, that wouldn't give her the prefects badge, that wouldn't give her any kind of acknowledgement that he sees her, that she would be quite bitter about that. Well the tricky thing too is people or characters that are prefects or that are loved by Slughorn tend to be those that are really solid witches and wizards who yeah. bring something to the table and really Umbridge there's no point where we get an impression of her being a particularly gifted witch no the only potential indication that we have is that she has a really strong cat Patronus yeah. but I don't know I'm a bit of two minds about whether Patronus actually means anything because mm-hmm. when Harry's first learning it they're like oh that's a sign of a like, really powerful witch and wizard that's like a huge thing but then by the end of the series, literally everybody talks them all the time. They're literally using them to send posts. Like it's kind of like the um, the three curses that no one else the what were they called? Unforgivable. Yeah. Unforgivable curses. By the end of the book, everyone is using them willy nilly. Everyone's crucioing everyone. Everyone is like yeah. Everyone is just kind of completely okay with controlling other people for their own means. It just kind of loses that power, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it really does, but. Even with that qualification, I still think that how much time, like her cat Patronus is up the entire time that she's running those trials and it's just circling and mm-hmm. is and fanning itself. I think that is still a next level that we hadn't necessarily seen in Patronuses, like them, like a Patronus is a pet almost, yeah. like a constant companion yeah. rather than something that comes when you need it. Well, I think that's because she's feeding off other people's misery, mm-hmm. so I don't know if she would be able to conjure that just normally, but because she was so in her element of basically torturing people that it just brought her so much joy that she was able to control her Patronus in that way. But you're yeah. right, we don't really see her casting any spells or anything. We see her have other people do it. Yeah, almost never. Uh, also, there's the example of Fred and George who make the swamp and she's unable to remove it yeah. despite their best attempts, right? And then Flitwick comes in and deals with it in like five seconds, seconds right? <laughs> so it's very comical, but it's also mm-hmm. like, oh, is she not competent? Is that part of why? Yeah. But then I did read on Pottermore that the quill that writes in your own blood, that that was her own invention. Okay. God. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, it's very dark. I had to know this would be a dark character mm. episode, but... So maybe it goes to say that she's not inherently strong witch, but that when she's funneling the thing that she's good at, which is 
being sadistic and awful, (laughs) that maybe actually that is her strength. And in Mm -hmm. that particular respect, she is very talented. Yeah. Sad, obviously, but let's talk about her and Hagrid. Oh, interesting. Okay. (laughs) So when I was thinking about Umbridge, and I do try to think of every character, even Snape, who I still think is atrocious, in a sympathetic way, I think of moments where they stood out for me in a bad way. And I think, can I, can I see where they were coming from? And I think of her relationship with Hagrid, where she comes into Hagrid and she basically belittles him in front of a classroom full of 15 year olds. And she does the same thing with Trelawney as well. But with Hagrid, there was like this other element of what do you call racism when it's not against race, but against like creatures? Creaturism? <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, let's go for it. But she basically implies that he's stupid. Mm-hmm. And she says, like, she makes notes on her clipboard really slowly and says, like, has to resort to crude sign language, appears to have short-term memory, and is basically trying to throw him off course and make him basically chip at his self-esteem. Yeah. That says a lot about her, I think. And she does the same thing with Trelawney as well, but for different reasons. I don't know why she does it with Trelawney, to be honest. But with Hagrid, there is this whole race thing coming into it. She feels the same way about Ferenzi, where when uh, when Dumbledore hires him to take over the divinations class, she is exceptionally cruel about him. When I was thinking about it, I was thinking, like, does it come from a place of fear? That's the only way I can kind of sympathize with why she might be trying to push those people away. Is she afraid of them? In the same way that I think she's afraid of Harry, and if she's afraid of what Harry symbolizes. Because if she does believe that Voldemort didn't rise from the dead, that if she believes that Fudge is right, that Harry is telling all these lies, then is she trying to stop Harry because she's afraid of what he symbolizes and and she kind of views him as the fall of the ministry? Yeah. I definitely agree. I think it also is probably just ignorance, right? So knowing that her one is really short and that generally she's very intolerant and not very understanding, I think that goes specifically to Trelawney, who's in an inherently like mystical subject matter, yeah. that that would be something that Umbridge would completely lack any understanding for. That's entirely out of her wheelhouse. And so just having that inability to understand what that even is, I think makes her a really easy target. Mm-hmm. And again, I think if you see her primary motivation as being power and perhaps seeking power born of fear, but ultimately trying to maintain that power, that part of that is undermining things that you don't understand. Yeah. So if she doesn't understand divination, then that's an easy one to undermine, to reestablish her power. Equally, if she doesn't understand power that looks different... So that could be different creatures, yeah. the creaturism or the racism, whether that's people who are centaurs or whether that's Hagrid being a half-giant. There is an inherent power in those other offerings or like the other things that those pre- creatures bring, yeah. those other characters bring to the table that she then has to seek to undermine because it exceeds her own. Yeah, And I think that's probably why she's also so awful to uh, Harry and to Dumbledore because again it represents a threat to her power in a way that she doesn't understand and even you would think that characters like Hermione she would kind of naturally gravitate towards but she doesn't because even though it's perhaps in the sense of power that she understands because there maybe is something on the same underlying level that we can see a bit of a link for which we talked about earlier it still is like a, 
a challenge to her authority. Mm, I think that's her key motivation. Mm -hmm. And that might be why she's so okay with the High Inquisitor squad as well, is because they're aligning to her level of authority and they're respecting her in a way that she's craving. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, too, on Hagrid, I think a really interesting character to talk about with that is also Percy. Yeah. Because Percy and the minister are the ones who ultimately go to remove Hagrid and are unsuccessful in doing so. And I think that's really interesting because on a surface level, you can see that they're kind of doing the same thing. Both Percy and Umbridge are in similar ministry roles, advancing similar ministry aims under the exact same minister. And yet, how we see them and how we think about them is so different. Yeah. Because we can see that Percy's doing it and is motivated by a rigidity born of a love of rules. Or at least, if I'm being favorable, that's how I'm interpreting it. Whereas, I don't think that that's the case for her. It's not about the rules for the sake of the rules or the structure of bureaucracy for its own sake. It's for her sake. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it feels different even though they're actually kind of doing the same thing. Can we feel compassion for Umbridge? Well, maybe we can feel compassion for the cats on her cat plates. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know about feeling compassion, but I think we can seek to understand her, maybe. Yeah. And maybe seeking to understand people that treat others badly and that have views that are born of ignorance. Part of that is understanding where that comes from and figuring out how to curb that. Mm-hmm. You know, without getting too philosophical about it, I mm-hmm. suppose that kind of speaks to making sure that students with certain backgrounds or family backgrounds or a lack of support are getting that at school. You know, Hogwarts was not the best place for that, right? Yeah. Like, we see that time and again where there's very little support systems for students. They're basically just shipped off to their mm-hmm. um, common room to hang out by themselves and hope for the best. Yeah. So I think that speaks to systems needing to be in place that are just better. Mm-hmm. Do you think she was seeking to improve Hogwarts? Or do you think she was just enacting her kind of level of violence throughout the school? Like, do you think she had good intentions going in? I think initially I really did want to read her that way, that it was for the love of rules and bureaucracy and that she saw that as an inherent improvement. But then, again, the more that I thought about it, the more I couldn't justify it that way. Yeah. Because if that was the case, it would have been evenly applied and it would have had some sort of outcome that wasn't just more power. You know, like there would have had to be some positive improvement that resulted in something positive, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I guess to rephrase that, you know, if you're enacting a rule and there's an ultimate aim that makes sense, even if the rule is oppressive, you can see that there was an aim. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of the rules, none of the aims made sense. It was for the rule's sake, yeah. which was for her power. So I would say probably no, that it wasn't about improving Hogwarts or the system or the lives of the students. It was, it was about her. We didn't really speak about her and Harry very much, other than, like, kind of touching on it. What do you think of that relationship? Well, I, again, I, I do think it's a commentary a little bit on hyper-femininity and how Harry engages women a bit. Yeah. I also did want to point briefly that I take umbrage. <laughs> so sorry, I can't help myself. <laughs> With how she's depicted um, in terms of her physical appearance. Yeah. I think that them leaning into and really doing quite a bit of fat shaming every time that she's described she's described as like bulging and you know she runs everywhere yeah yeah, told like and she's out of breath all this stuff that i think is really damaging and it's trying to feed into how ridiculous she is and how ridiculous she looks and is as a character that it kind of almost seems like it's meant to undermine her attempts at power that her physical appearance isn't aligned with how we conceive of women in power Mm. and i think we do actually see that societally a lot that women who are in positions of power all look the exact same they're like these 
tall, skinny, put together women. And part of defeating that and allowing more women to go through is having women that look different. Yeah. And so when you have characters that don't fit that particular mold and you're villainizing them or dehumanizing them, I think that that can be kind of problematic. Um, I don't know if that goes to your original question about mm-hmm. Richard Perry. I, again, I think it is, it's more about his relationship with Voldemort, I would yeah. say, because it's making Voldemort can't be in the school every year. That would just be impractical. So it's driving home the daily impacts and the tangible realities of what it is to have, you know, a despot basically running your everyday life and mm-hmm. what that looks like for you. And I think because he has this relationship with Umbridge where he's able to see on a daily basis how this makes a difference in his life, that that probably makes him better able to understand how a leader, a de facto leader, like Baltimore, impacts society later on. Yeah. And I do think, I do, I keep going back to like, why does she target Harry in that way? And I do think she does view him as kind of a symbol of the fall of everything that she's built or everything that she's trying to build. She sees him as kind of like, if, she, if he is, if she is like this hyper feminine person who's trying to rise into power, then he is just kind of like jock character who's like hyper masculine and it's just putting her down every step of the way won't listen to her won't conform to her and it's basically fighting off i i imagine he just kind of like symbolizes every single person that she had to fight off like he said to kind of rise into power because she doesn't fit the mold of what a woman in power should look like and then he is just kind of the symbol of everything that she's gone through of course she was of course she would hate him yeah it is kind of funny to think of Harry as a jock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he is. But he is, yeah. No, uh, he definitely doesn't see himself that way, but he is. Yeah, I, I think it goes to Harry does have a lot of privileges, right? He gets so much stuff just for showing up oh, and yeah. being Harry. Mm-hmm. And for somebody that's had to struggle to get everything and who maybe isn't inherently that good of a witch, maybe had to work really hard. And, you know, even if her motivations are entirely personally motivated, she still has seems to have had a hard go of it. Yeah. So you can see that a character who hasn't had a hard time of it and who's had a lot of things kind of just gifted to him on a platter, you know, we don't know how much she's aware of Harry or his background before she comes into the school because they don't really meet prior to the beginning of the fifth. She would just know him from lore, wouldn't she, as just this celebrity boy who's, who I imagine everyone before the fifth book just spoke about such reverie that he's amazing he's so talented he does all these things in Hogwarts he's Dumbledore's favorite boy and then it's only in the fifth it's only at the end of the fourth book that it just kind of kind of crumbles so yeah and if she is the kind of person who does believe everything she reads in the Daily Prophet then she would believe that he is lying that he is just looking for attention all the time yeah and her well this is something I actually wanted to ask you about too yeah is because their first interaction is actually at Harry's trial yeah but arguably it's before then, because I read that, um, I think this was on Pottermore, that she was actually the one credited with sending the Dementors soul the winging. Yeah, she was, yeah. Yeah, and then in the trial, she talks about how absurd it is that anybody would send mm-hmm. So you do have to wonder where that comes from, right? Why she would be sending Dementors to a school child's home in the non-wizarding world and deem that to be acceptable before she's even met him. Yeah. So while I think there's definitely some resentment that could be born of their relationship and him being a favorite and her being, in some senses, an underdog, 
it mm-hmm. still doesn't make sense because she never would have met him before to have that mm-hmm. kind of distaste and dislike of him. It's actually in the book. So she says, he never knew I ordered the mentors to go after Potter last summer, but he was delighted to be given the chance to expel him all the same. It was you, gasped Harry. You sent the mentors after me. Somebody had to act, breathed Umbridge, as her wand came to rest pointedly directly at Harry's forehead. They were all bleating about silencing you somehow, discrediting you, but I was the one who actually did something about it. And you wriggled out of that one, didn't you, Potter? Not today, though, not now. So, yeah, it's, again, fighting for power. That's why she did it, because everyone around her was saying that they needed to, yeah, discredit Harry somehow to make it seem like Dumbledore is going mad. Mm-hmm. And she was like, okay, let's do something about it. Yeah. It's a very ruthless way, I think. It's a very Slytherin way of acting as well. It is, yeah. But also you have to wonder if there should almost be two Slytherins, right? There should be one Slytherin that's just people that are ambitious and driven mm. and don't want to kill everybody. And then yeah. there should actually just be like a Death Eater house mm. where they ship people off and try and manage their yeah. Death Eater impulses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You do kind of see different sides of Slytherin house, I think, mm. and that's one of the worst sides. That's why like a mentorship program Hogwarts would work so well. And not have mentors in your own house, like have older students from different houses like support other kids imagine how like effective that would be for like inter-house merging as well but also to kind of guide students in that way like that would be amazing yeah i was in hogwarts i was headmaster (laughs) that's one of the things that i would try to yeah so i mean really also i think we could probably talk about the failings of dumbledore yeah, in this episode because there's a reason why Umbridge has the power and the hold that she does and it is partly because Dumbledore kind of washes his hand of, hands of the whole thing yep. and thinks it'll be more effective to not challenge the minister by not challenging Umbridge yep. but in the process he ends up really allowing quite a lot of harm to happen at Hogwarts so maybe that does speak to I mean obviously educational institutions don't look like Hogwarts right? Yeah. <laughs> But it does speak to the need for having these in-book support systems that Hogwarts mm-hmm. obviously lacks. Yeah, there's no pedagogy in Hogwarts at all. At all. But yeah, does does Dumbledore know what she's doing in detentions? I think that he must, right? Like, he's Dumbledore. He must know that she's inflicting pain onto students somehow, even if he doesn't know exactly what she's doing. You can't tell me he, it just completely, like not something he's ever thought of that she would possibly do. I get that he didn't appoint her, that she was appointed by the ministry, and in a lot of ways he can't control her, but he could do something about that. Or surely he was monitoring her actively to try and reduce the harms. He had, like, the reason he distanced himself from Harry is because he knew that their relationship had the potential to cause Harry to Yeah. So then why wasn't he also monitoring Harry in his own way mm-hmm. to ensure that that harm wasn't being actualized? It doesn't yeah. really make any sense. Mm-hmm. Is there any other points about Umbridge you want to talk about? Well, we could talk about how her Patronus is a cat. It oh. <laughs> makes me so sad because I love cats. I know. I don't like that characterization at all. I feel like she should have something more awful. Does anyone else have a cat? McGonagall does. Yeah. McGonagall has a cat. So again, I think that really points to them being kind of foils for each other, yeah. right? That they are women in similar positions, that on the surface are a bit similar, but one is rule-abiding and strict, and the other is strict for her own sake. Absolutely. So maybe cats are just so dynamic that they can be both. <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to read it that not as cats being really ruthless and kind of, I mean, they can be. But, Although, yeah. Do you remember how her Patronus is described as looking? Like, is it a particular type of cat, or is it just... I don't remember. I think it was, like, a big, white, fluffy cat, whereas McGonagall's, like, a tabby cat. 
Maybe there's something in that too. A Persian cat. Yeah, see? Another yeah. the purebred obsession me, right? <laughs> <laughs> And that does tend to be the case. I mean purebred pets can sometimes have behavioral issues yeah. and be much worse than yeah, absolutely. tabby cat mm-hmm. one. Yeah. yeah, and tabby cats are the most common cats in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a black cat. So. I have a black cat. <laughs> I have a black cat and a tabby cat. So okay, yeah, you are. that makes sense. So <laughs> tabbies are the most common. Yeah, people think it's black cats, but now it's tabbies are the most common. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, the is common, supportive, <laughs> lovely. Mm-hmm. They're a little fighter for the people. <laughs> and Umbridge is a little Persian shit. Yeah, just Persian dick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else? I did have a bit about. The Selwyn flames, because that's why she wanted the locket. That is a good point, though. It's just like she does. It kind of falls into her obsession of being pure blooded and like wanting, but she's not pure blood. She's yeah. a she's half blood, but she has this huge obsession with cleansing the magical society. She has a Persian cat as a patronus, but then she has like this yeah weird thing of trying to link herself with this huge house, and it's one of the great ten or whatever that um, mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling brought out like she, that is, just kind of falls into her obsession of trying to be as pure as possible trying to be as like higher high up in the wizarding world as possible yeah but then also still not being that clever because surely if you were a member of the solid family and you had all these links to slytherin you would probably recognize slytherin's crest yeah that's true right <laughs> <laughs> yeah you were in slytherin for seven years yeah. how can you not recognize that s like how many times a day do you need to see it before you yeah. like, recognize it on the street <laughs> Maybe it's so small that she didn't, but... I don't know. Maybe it was just seeing it with Mundungus, but... But again, actually, the love of the rules is not that she could have arrested Mundungus yeah. if she doesn't. These are the questions I usually close with. But I feel like they'd be really hard to answer with Umbridge. Maybe that can be our challenge of the day. Is, is there anything that you love about Umbridge? I do love her tut-tuts. Like, <laughs> when she's interrupting yeah. stuff. Him, him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and she is very prim and organized, and I do think that that can be admirable in a certain context. And to give her credit, she does know what she likes. Yeah. We'll focus on the good things that she likes and not the sadistic things that she likes, but she knows that she likes cats, and she likes pinks and ribbons, and she likes being effeminate and put together. So credit yeah. to her for knowing herself and knowing what she wants. Yeah, I like that she kind of leans into the things that other people might hate her for. She kind of leans into the hyper-femininity, even though she must know that people mock her for it. Mm-hmm. She le- leans into her, like, sadism, even though it's not, it doesn't make her very popular. Well, it does with some people. But she isn't afraid of just kind of embracing who she is. And maybe we can all afford to be a bit of an umbrage in that way. But maybe listen to people <laughs> in the way that she doesn't. But, but also maybe just don't hurt yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of where mm-hmm. he's on the line, I guess. But... Yeah, and I mean, she must be clever about systems and how social systems work and how to navigate those because she does really well. She does rise up very high in the ministry and then she rises up very high in the ministry after Voldemort as well. Yeah, that's really admirable. She pulls herself from the whole mess that is her year in Hogwarts and Mm -hmm. she still manages to rise up enough that she basically takes over the ministry other than the prime minister. Like, she's doing all the all the really evil shit that the ministry is trying to enact. And really, the prime minister that she's under is Thickness. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. she's probably the de facto minister. Yeah. Well, unless you're saying that Voldemort is the de facto minister, I suppose, but... I don't think Voldemort is really interested in that 
kind of hierarchy of no. power. Yeah. That's how her and him are different, isn't it? Is that she's interested in rising in that way, in that very bureaucratic way, but he, that's just not what he's interested in. Yeah. But I guess also Baltimore is incredibly gifted. Yeah. Right? Say what you will. I'm sure you're doing it on Baltimore <laughs> as well. Um, but he is, he was like the wizard of his time aside from Dumbledore. Yeah. Whereas Umbridge is not that. That was never going to be an option for her. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is her strength and that can be yeah. admirable is understanding how systems work and how to navigate with them effectively. If she had more magical ability, would it have made her kinder or would it have made her worse? I don't know. I mean, maybe if she had shown more magical ability earlier on, she would have been better liked. Yeah. Which might have mean that she wouldn't have been as rejected and perhaps would have had more opportunities at Hogwarts. Mm. Maybe that kind of travels down. But if you picture her as fully formed Umbridge, but just a bit more powerful, I don't see that as making her a better person. No. No, it's hard to kind of imagine, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You can't imagine a kind Umbridge. Like, if she had a pet cat, would she be nice to that cat? Well, I don't know. I can't imagine her being soft. Because the thing is, she could have a pet cat. Like, it's Hogwarts. Yeah. She's a witch. She could have a million cats if she wanted, mm-hmm. but she doesn't. She has them on plates behind her. Yeah. Which, again, speaks to not being able to actually relate to anything or mm-hmm. anyone and wanting that layer or that boundary between yeah. you and other people because it has to be separated by something that she can control. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess in, in terms of trying to be empathetic for Umbridge, maybe we can seek to understand her, but I don't know that we can seek to kind of justify any of her no, actions. Or I don't ever. think any of her actions are justifiable, are they? Yeah, there was never an outcome where we suddenly saw her as a good person mm-hmm. and emerged through the class. No. And we're like, oh my gosh, maybe Umbridge is great. Misunderstood like, all along. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, who knows, right? Maybe there's something else in her backstory that would really make you feel for her a bit more or developmentally, I don't know, but... As it stands, I just don't see it. What do you hate about Umbridge? (laughs) (laughs) Well, she literally abuses children and minorities Mm -hmm. and has no qualms about that. So I hate that about Mm her. I hate how much she hates other people for no reason. But that's the thing. I think she does have a reason for it. It might not be a reason that makes sense to us because we're rational human beings. But I think everything she does is justified in her head. Right, that's true. I think, yeah, I think if you were to ask her, she could give you point, point, points of like why she hates people. And that's, oh, that's another thing I want to talk about as well mm-hmm. is Lupin. She is part of the reason that Lupin has to hide because she puts in all the rules about anti-werewolf stuff after he's outed by Snape. She is part of the reason he looks shabbier and shabbier. Like she is just kind of like that way, but she, but I think that it does come from fear, a fear of things she doesn't understand or isn't willing to understand. Yeah. Or things that have power that she'll never have or power that she'll never understand. Yeah. So we spoke about that earlier in the context of Trelawney and yeah. also Hagrid. And I think that extends perfectly to Lupin as well, mm-hmm. why she would want to restrict that and take yeah. away any power that he might have bored of what makes him different. Mm-hmm. If Umbridge was sitting right in front of you and you could ask her anything or if you could tell her anything, what would you want to know? I mean, I would like to think that I could explain things to her or tell her things in a way that would make her less ignorant and less awful. I don't know if that's actually possible. It's tricky. She's not really a character that I see there being any point in reasoning with. Yeah. Or I agree. anything to gain from talking with her. I don't know. Maybe they're trying to understand why mm-hmm. she's so sadistic or why she thinks that power will make her happy. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good thing. I think I would want to ask her something similar as well. Just like, how much power do you think would satisfy you? What's your end goal? I don't know if she'd be able to answer that. No, because presumably there isn't one. Yeah. Other than her as a despot forever, mm-hmm. which would still ultimately become mm-hmm. unsatisfied yeah. over enough time. Evil middle management forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she has real middle manager energy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I definitely had a manager like her. I had a manager once that I, she treated me like crap for like months. And then I went into a meeting and basically like broke down and I was just like, I feel really unhappy in this role. And then she just started writing down everything I was saying. And then she went, okay, you said that you, you felt like I was breaking your self-esteem down. Can you give me an example exactly when I did that? And was basically trying to just basically break down every single like feeling that I had. I just ended up leaving. Oh my god! I mean, I was yeah. I left the job like a month later, but it was just kind of, she does remind me of that kind of middle manager of the ones that feed on power and don't like anyone who doesn't respect that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry that that happened to you. <laughs> Definitely, that's really awful. Okay. I think you ever listen to this, you know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> just throw some shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's probably why people can hate her so much and hate her in such a real way that maybe you can't hate Voldemort because you don't know anybody who's like Voldemort who very genuinely yeah. just can't love and is powerful beyond what you can imagine, right? Whereas there are circumstances and there are people that you see that Umbridge kind of personifies a bit, right? Everybody's had a bad run-in with somebody that has some level yeah. of power that is abusing that power and you can't understand why they are and there's not really any rationale for why it is it's more for their sake yeah and it feels personal it feels like they're attacking you personally but you can't really understand why and the perfect irony is that it's kind of like the absence of being able to personally identify with somebody that's what makes it feel personal absolutely yeah on that note (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you so much oh thank you for having me you're welcome Thank you to my wonderful, smart, gorgeous guest, Taylor. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Leave a review for a shout out. And contact me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Potter Study Pod or email at potterstudypod at gmail.com. See you next time. I love you. Bye.